I don't ever really sleep in the morning or night before the day. But I tell myself to stay in bed, to not rush through the seconds, minutes, hours of June 22nd. No, I need to steep in them. My skin needs to boil and cook until I feel the rage fresh and raw again in my heart. I get out of bed just before dawn. My mother's room, my first destination. Her bedroom door swings open into near darkness. I keep her curtains drawn at all times, but electronic tea candles glow orange on the table that I've made into a tribute to her memory. Her favorite quilt, one we made together, serves as the table slip. Pictures of her alone, along with one of me and her, sit on the blanket. I stare hard at the picture of us together. It was one of our last adventures before I decided I was too old to be hanging with my mother so much. Before I decided that her path wouldn't be my own. That I would do and be better than she ever was. I remember thinking those things and saying those things. But now, I have no clue how I could have thought any of that was true. Teenage bullshit, I guess. But I placed that picture of us together on her tribute as well because neither of the women in that picture exists anymore. I stare down at the table, this carefully placed shrine to my mother's memory that I have lived with for years. I grab the nearest picture, showing her young and beautiful outside of the store the day she bought it. I take in her wide smile and the giddy anticipation on her face, as if I hadn't stared at this picture for hours already in my life. And then I slam it to the floor. One by one, I pick up the pictures, and one by one, I throw them to the ground, glass and plastic and wood breaking as they hit at the corner or straight on the face of the protective cover. Soon the ground is littered with glass and broken pieces, but it's not enough. When there's no more pictures, I grab the blanket and fling it off the table, the candle smacking into the adjacent wall. I flip the table, turn over the dresser, not hearing the crashes as the blood rushes in my ears. Pivoting away, I slam my fists into the wall and scream, the sound echoing throughout the empty apartment. I lean my forehead against the empty wall, knowing what waste lay behind me now. Without turning to assess all the damage, I cradle my sore hands and walk back into the living room, shutting the door to her room behind me. Now, it's time to start my day. It's All in the Cards podcast. Bonus episode. The anniversary. My next stop is the store. I sit in the back as I wait for the early morning delivery I know is coming. It would be foolish to risk someone stealing it all while I'm gone, even today. While I wait, I wonder if I should even keep the shop closed. Every year since I took ownership of the store, I've closed on this day. But I've also had no help. Sam pops into my head, and I wonder if I should call her. It would be good to get her away from her family, and I wouldn't lose a day of revenue. Then again, Sam is nosy, and I'm not sure I could keep what today holds for me away from her. 
The damn brat probably knows what today is and wants to feel sorry for me. I'm not going to deal with her pity. No, I'll leave the shop closed as usual. Most of my regulars know what today is as well. Once the UPS truck drops off my inventory, I make my way to the front and grab the hanging plaque from behind the front desk. I stare at it, the bronze letters cool against my palms. For Emma Albright, original owner and founder of Which Way Between the Lines Bookstore, lost June 22nd, but never forgotten. The last picture of her before that night, standing at the edge of Hawksbill Crag, looking over the Ozark Forest like a guardian of the earth. What power she had at her fingertips. What potential. And she squandered it. Parrot Island Water Park had been my choice of reenactment for the last few years. After my initial return to Bluff Hole ended poorly and outside of my intentions, I chose this more public space. Bluff Hole was another childhood summer's stomping ground that I would frequent with my mother and sometimes her sisters, but another one that was ruined by my lack of control. Today is about remembering. Going back to Bluff Hole just risks creating a new memory instead of revisiting existing ones. No, this water park has treated me well, all things considered. It's a little past eleven when the park first opens. A mix of mothers with little ones and teenagers gather at the entrance as the park attendees check bags for unwanted items. I'm about twenty feet from the ticket booth when Sharon, the manager, spots me. Knowing my intentions and seeing I have nothing in tow, she waves me on. I know what she's going to say when I walk past, but I hold up a handful of cash and spare her the breath. Don't worry, I won't make you come rescue me this time. She takes the cash and lets me through, making sure it takes just a little bit longer than usual for people to get in, giving me space to do what I need to do. She doesn't see me quite as bad for business. I think it's mostly because she feels sorry for me. I'll take advantage of that as much as I can. I don't care for her pity, but I care to be able to do what I came here for. I walk to the far end of the park, to where the big slides empty into. It's the deepest part of the pool. I clasp the crystal hanging from my necklace, a red jasper stone. Let the water engulf as it ebbs and flows, my body like rock to the depths below. The cold water stings my skin as I let myself fall in. I sink motionless, willing my body down, down until I feel the bottom of the pool against my back. It doesn't take long for my chest to burn, but that's the penance for the endurance to stay down here for longer than I should. Still clasping the red jasper, I remember that day at Bluff Hole. I remember my mother hugging me and telling me everything would be okay. I remember pushing her away and telling her, how could it be okay? I remember how quiet and still the water was. Drowning is not as loud as the movies make it. It takes just a blink and the lapping of the water for someone to go under just as that boy went under. Angry. I was so angry at Heaven Williams spreading a rumor about me and Jack Bennett having sex under the bleachers. She was jealous that Jack was giving me attention and not her, but Jack never even laid a hand on me. Now, neither of those names mean anything outside of this memory, and the name that should mean everything to me? I never knew. The boy. The boy whose energy I stole when I lost control. If he would have died, his name would have been in the papers. Thank God he was grabbed in time. But Mom rushed me away from the shore, pulled me back up to the car by the time they had him out. 
He's okay, you're okay, she had told me. She grabbed her bracelet from the glove box of the car and put it on me. Its charms were mostly black gemstones, snowflake obsidian, tourmaline, with some dried spider plant leaves weaved into the beads. Mom made it to help suppress my natural abilities. I hated wearing it because it always zapped all of my energy. But that day, I felt like I should have been strapped down by a bed of bracelets. That was the last day she had a chance to console me. That was the day I spat in her face. Her abilities didn't manifest the same way mine did. She didn't understand what I had to go through. I would give anything for her to be here and tell me it's okay now. The pressure builds in my head as my lungs burn, aching for breath. I finally open my eyes, the chlorine in the pool, the cherry on top of my burning cake, but I can make out the murky form of Sharon leaning over, watching me, wondering if I finally did it, if I finally killed myself. I don't deserve the peace death would bring me. I release my energy holding me down and push off the bottom of the pool, my body screaming at me as I'm making it move so oxygen deprived. I break the surface of the water right beneath Sharon and two lifeguards I hadn't seen before, further back from the lip of the pool. Oh, see? I told you, I didn't need saving. I don't like the look on her face. It's less pissy and more pity. I swim away to the ladder before she says anything. The first few years, she didn't know what to do with me. In another life, she had been an Olympic swimmer, so one year she tried to go down with me. I didn't stop her. But it was her that got pulled from the pool that day, not me. I gotta hand it to her. She's good at her job. I leave just as I came, the water dripping from me as I make my way to my car. One terrible memory down, a few more to go. I change into my next set of clothes before I head to the well. I let my hair air dry, rolling all the windows down, the hot summer air whipping in and out of my car. I used to love the stretcher road. Mom would be driving, and I'd be kicked back, feet hanging out the window, watching as the trees flew by, watching as the trees crept in closer to the road as we made it up to the Boston Mountains. To everyone else, it's known as the glory hole, but the women in my family always called it the well to, to avoid that sexual innuendo that came with the glory hole. I didn't know what a glory hole was until I was a teen. Once I did, of course we laughed. Every time my Uncle Dale called it the glory hole, me and my cousin would giggle. To the average traveler, it's nothing more than a cave with a hole in the ceiling, thanks to water erosion. In the wetter moments of the year, it would have a beautiful waterfall crashing onto the rocks below, carving a stream down into the valley. But water isn't the only thing filling the wall. There is a nexus of power there, created by the natural metaphysical properties of the Ozarks. Forget ley lines, it's all about the creation. The Ozarks aren't as old as the Appalachians, but they still have their own incredible journey. Once I turned 10, mom would take me there, show me how to draw on the power of the well, and to be wary of other creatures doing the same. That's when she told me the howlers go there too. I knew about the howlers before then. Once I was walking, she took me to their pack. She wanted them to be comfortable with me. She always liked to remind me how much she loved to watch me with them. It reminded her that strong things can be soft and small things can make a difference. Too bad neither of those sentiments kept her from getting killed. I still don't see what difference her death made. Mom showed me she could attune to the Howlers a long time ago, and the summer before she died, I finally managed to do it. I was there with them every day that summer, to connect with Sasha and see what she sees, feel what she feels. 
I'd lay there once we were connected and persuade her to run through the forest so I could know what it was like to be aware of everything around me, in rhythm with it. Step and not stumble, run and phase through the trees, even feel the overwhelming burst of magic they used to transport to in-between places. It's a mile down to the well from the road, but it feels like ten. The path is rocky and treacherous. Most of it is downhill, and my knees hate walking down more than walking up. Despite all that, I know the trail well enough to walk it on a new moon night, when the twinkles of the stars are blotted out by the canopy above. I make it to the well about mid-afternoon. The trees thin around the rocky cave, and the clear blue sky hangs above me. I wait for the cute couple with the German Shepherd to leave before I step down onto the shelf the cave is made from. Many people like to climb down and get inside the cave, watch and listen to the water stream down over the rocks and chill. But I always like standing above the cave, standing in the stream inches from the hole in the ceiling. Sometimes I think about stepping through, but in those moments, I don't see the rocks in the cave below. I see a portal to another world, one better than this. But I never jump. I don't deserve to. Nor do I deserve to drink from the well of power. So instead, I just drink the water. It's not what I came for anyways. I sense Domino as soon as he arrived, but I must admit I still don't see him. Howlers are so good at hiding themselves, staying in the in-between, almost like the Fae. Mom never seemed to think that they were of the Fae world, though. She said they were like us, of this world, but given more gifts than others. Domino. He steps out from behind a tree as if he just walked out of the tree itself. The lush greenery barely makes a sound beneath his paws, and once his nails hit the rock at the shelf, they clack like pebbles tossed down by a child, only heard because they're meant to be heard. More rustling lets me know he's not the only one to come, but the trail may be trafficked too much during the day for the rest of them to show themselves here. Doesn't matter. Domino will always be enough. Domino nudges my elbow with his head until I pet him, the fur soft between his ears. I work my way down into his neck and back, though something pricks me. I prod tenderly to see what it is. Looks like he ran through some cockleburrs, a few dug deep into his thick fur. With more inspection, I find a lot more matted into his tail. This boy, I don't know what I'm going to do with him. You're lucky I love you. No one else would get this treatment. I go to work gingerly taking each burr out of his fur. A few still sting and my hands gradually turn red with blood. When Domino smells it, he turns and nuzzles his snout into my palms. He licks them, not just for the blood, but to help my small wounds heal. I of course could have lived without him doing that, but the gesture means a lot to me, especially from a creature who owes me nothing. He's licking my face before I realize a few more howlers have stepped out of the cover of the trees to approach us. I don't move. I haven't been around the pack in so long, I doubt any of these yearlings would know me. And they do all look like yearlings, except for one. She's streaked with white fur around her muzzle and eyes, the faded pale of one who has lived a long time. Beyond the white is the red of autumn leaves. Her tail is thick, free of cocklebirds, because she's too wise to be foolish as to run into them. Sasha. I have not seen her since Mom died. Seeing her gives me hope, but I try to remain skeptical. Still, 
I have to try, but not yet. I want to bond with the yearlings. And so as they approach, I work the cockleburrs out of their fur. Each thanks me in their own way, whether cleaning my wounds like Domino or playfully nudging and nipping at me. One just lays on me, knocking me over, making me laugh for the first time in a long time. Once I'm down, they all swarm, coming to love on me, their antlers only knocking occasionally. That must be one of the first things they learn when their antlers grow in. How to be cognizant of them and to not get them caught on things. Makes me think of Texas longhorns, too. Except longhorns usually have flat pastures with few trees to deal with. How the howlers move fluidly through the forest without getting them caught is beyond me. An experience a lifetime ago reminds me that it's second nature to them. Almost like breathing. An experience that I can no longer have. An experience I lost the day I lost my mother. But every year on this day, I try again. Sasha being here may be a good omen that it will finally work again. She huffs and pushes the yearlings out of the way to get to me. Suddenly, she's over me, her muzzle against my forehead, her warm, wet snout prodding me like a suspicious mother. I lay there and let her do it. I'm sure she remembers me. If anything, she's probably pissed I stayed away for so long. I pet the side of her face, knowing why she's whining. I grip both sides of her jaw, my fingers deep in her fur, and I try to attune. I open my energy to her, letting all my metaphysical shields down. The thrum of the well just a few feet away pulses in my head, but I've got to focus on Sasha. I open my mind and body to her, and she growls at me. I've overstepped my bounds. Slowly releasing her, I lower my arms, hoping she doesn't eat my face. Part of me knows that it's the growl she would give a pup that's chewing on her ear. But I'm not stupid enough to think that after all these years, we can pick up where we left off. And honestly, where we left off was both pissed at the universe for taking my mother away. She steps away from me, back into the trees. Damn it, I shouldn't have tried on her. I should have tried on Domino. I had successfully attuned to Sasha so many times before, but Sasha was more bonded to my mother than she was to me. I sit up. I'm not taking her walking away like this. Sasha! Is that it? You just turn your back on me like this? She stops and looks back at me, expectant. What does she want from me? I can't bring her back. You know that. Don't you think I would have by now if I could? She's gone, Sasha. You'll never see her again. I'll never see her again. Why can't I be enough? Her mouth hangs open as she pants and stares at me, and then she turns and walks back into the forest. Several yearlings follow her, but Domino and a jet black howler stay behind. That's about right. Every year they come, every year I try and fail to attune. I've been in denial, but it must have always been my mother's magic allowing me to attune. Without her, I can't do it. There are so many things I can't do without her. Now, it's time to return to the things that I can. I dance. I never needed anyone with me to dance. Hell, don't need actual music, only the music I hear in my head. But tonight, I want the energy of the club. The anonymity of being a part of a twitching, jerking crowd, all following, or trying to follow, the same beat. 
There is universal magic in being a part of something bigger than yourself. And you don't have to go to a church or synagogue or temple to find it. It's like the strings of fate cluster together to form, for a moment, a larger strand, a constellation of flesh and energy from the high of needing to move to the rhythm. I close my eyes, lost in the sea of bodies, swaying to EDM songs that I love and that I hate. I dance until I sweat. I dance until I'm not me at all, but just the movements of my arms, legs, hips, a marionette whose life is measured by the meter of the music. The heat of the dance floor intensifies, and I open my eyes to see a body right in front of me, a young woman around my age, and her eyes are all on me. She's one of the few women I've seen lately taller than me. Her short blonde hair shimmers with sweat in the green-blue lights of the dance floor. She smiles and comes closer, swaying her hips closer to me. I turn away from her to grind against her, focusing on the feel of her body. Who needs alcohol when you can ride the high of sensation? With no more introduction than exchanging names and giving consent, we make our way down Garrison Avenue to my apartment. I pull her along and she giggles with delight. She's excited about sneaking, about being with a stranger. I don't have to siphon that energy off of her. I can just hold her and it slides over me like a blanket. I get her upstairs and lay on her couch. I climb between her legs as I run my hands up her torso. She wraps her legs around me and I wrap myself deep in her anticipation. Her soft skin snuggles against me, and I want to drown in all of her, but that's when I sense it. There's a nugget of something else. A sense of anxiety that comes from doubt or stress, not the type of good anxiety from having a one-night stand. And that's when her hand slips off of me to her leg, and I hear the slow slink of metal coming out of the sheath. I run my lips over her neck up to her ear and whisper, You won't do it, you coward. Her blade sinks into my side. The pain is instant and pounding and burning. She whispers back to me the worst fucking line in the Bible. Thou shalt not suffer a witch. I raise my head back enough to look her in the eyes. I had planned on eating you, but not like this. You think God can forgive you for being a lesbian, but can't forgive me for being a witch? She digs the knife in further and takes my breath away. I let my weight fall on her, trying to get most of the blood on her and not on my couch. She thinks she can just push me onto the floor as dead weight. She doesn't know it's her that's the dead one. I grab her by the neck and drink her down. Her eyes go wide as I feed from her life force. She even gets a few more stabs in before dropping the knife, too weak to wield it any longer. I drink her down until her body is a former shell of the beauty I danced with at the club. Her earlier anticipation merely an appetizer to the hate buried deep within her. Such hate and fear and worry. All with the aftertaste of a young life. Potential. Ambition. Pity. As I suck her in, I focus her life energy into my wounds. I'm not completely healed, but I won't die. The relief lasts mere seconds as I stare at what's left of the woman whose name I can't even remember. Just like the boy whose name I never learned, and the countless others I harmed growing up. Pain and death. That's all I offer. That's all that will ever be with me. No matter how much I drown myself in flesh and energy, pain and death are my only real companions. 
I drop to the floor and cry. It's too much. I should have let her kill me. I should have let her push me into death's embrace with the fleeting hope that I would see my mother, the only one who ever cared enough to push past my attitude and get through to me. Aunt Beatty always tried, but she believed, like Maureen, that I had to come to the wisdom and power on my own, that I couldn't be led. My mother never believed that way. She fought tooth and nail, dragged me through the mud if it meant it would help me. She would never leave me to wallow in the sorrow for long. It's okay to be frustrated or sad, but it wasn't okay to stay that way. Keep moving forward. Keep doing better. Find a way to enjoy the day. Find a way to find peace in the darkness until the light comes back. But my light left me the day she left. Right after she died, I let myself slip into a darkness I had never known, thinking surely that light would come for me. It never did, so now I'm stuck forever in the gray. The mist of the darkness blurs the night I'm trying to make my way back to. But for what? For her? To be the daughter she wanted me to be? To be the woman she wanted me to be? I swallow my pity and self-loathing and find my anger again. Let it seep into me as the sting from the stabs disappears. I leave the witch hater on the couch to feed Mr. Giggles later. I make my way back to my mother's room. Piece by piece, I put it back the way it was, replacing any broken glass with fresh photo frames, straightening the quilt over the table perfectly before placing everything on it like it had been before. Every second, my anger boils inside me but not for my mother like this morning. I know that her choice wasn't a choice. I know that they used her. They saved themselves instead of risking their lives to save hers, their sister, their high priestess. They hid behind the curtain of authority she had wrapped herself in as if the burden was hers and hers alone, when the ritual that night took every single one of them to even have a snowball's chance in hell of working. Their might and unity was nothing but a facade. None of them deserved to stand by her. None of them deserved to ask of her what was needed. There's no doubt in my mind that her last thoughts were not for her sisters, but for me. She was forced to leave me behind, knowing Aunt Beatty was here to take care of me. But there is no replacing Emma Jane Albright. There is no denying their guilt in her death, and there is nothing that will quell my pain, and there will be nothing to stop me from destroying Maureen Beckett and whoever else was there that night, even if it's the last thing I do on this earth. They're all dead. They just don't know it yet.